Hey, it's Michael Isikoff here. I want to let our listeners in the Washington area know we'll be doing a special in-person live taping of the pod Thursday, April 28th at 4 p.m. at Politics and Prose Bookstore. The title is The Trump Investigations. Where are they headed? And we've got a great panel for the show. Bob Woodward and Carol Lennig of the Washington Post, and George Conway at the main Politics and Prose store on Connecticut Avenue in Washington, D.C. If you can, please swing by. Look, I'm so honored. I'm so honored to be here at this Trump rally. It's the second Ohio rally I've ever been to, and it's amazing to be here and to see such an amazing crowd again. Let me just say, first of all, I'm joined by my wonderful family over here. I would try to list them, but so many of us came up here for this thing. We're excited. We're excited to see big man, the 45th president of the United States and the 47th president of the United States tonight. That was J.D. Vance speaking at a Donald Trump rally in Delaware County, Ohio last weekend, publicly boasting of the endorsement he had just gotten from the big man touting his newfound benefactor as the future 47th president of the United States. Trump's backing of Vance, author of the best-selling Hillbilly Elegy, was a head-spinning moment in the wild and woolly Ohio Republican primary. Just six years ago, when Trump was first running for president, Vance had scoriated him, writing in one recently revealed text message to his former college roommate, Quote, I go back and forth between thinking Trump is a cynical asshole like Nixon, who wouldn't be that bad and might even prove useful, or that he's America's Hitler. But that was then, and whatever Vance thought of Trump's politics at the time, he's abandoned those views of yesteryear, seeing in a full embrace of Donald Trump the key to victory in the Senate race. Next month starts a wave of primaries in Ohio, in Georgia, and Pennsylvania that will provide the strongest clues yet on just how much of a hold on Republican voters that Trump still has. We'll check in first with Yahoo News' Tom Lobianco, who covered the Trump rally, and then we'll talk to Kyle Conant, the editor of The Crystal Ball, a newsletter that tracks congressional elections on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. And we are joined by our friend and colleague, Tom Lobianco, who was out there at the Trump rally. Uh, Tom, welcome back to Skullduggery. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. So as I said in the uh, cold open there, uh, the Trump endorsement of Vance was uh, pretty head spinning for a lot of people, given how publicly critical Vance had been of Trump. Let's start out by give us the mood among the folks who were at the rally. What did you hear? What did you see? How big of an impact is this Trump endorsement of Vance going to have in what looks like a pretty uh, intense Senate Republican primary? Well, you know, what's funny about that. And it's so good, you know, that, that we're back out and talking with voters as opposed to you know, listening to our political consultants, you know, calling on the phone all the time, you know, during the COVID lockdown to 
actually see where folks are right now. And I got to tell you, man, they they seem to find this head spinning as well. <laughs> I mean, the Trump you know, voters. Yes, the Trump voters seem to find this to, to be quite confusing. You know, there was a um, there was a woman at the Trump rally. Her name was Stella Clark, former Kroger employee. She you know did everything at Kroger for you know thirty two years. And what was funny about that is you know I asked her, okay, you know who are you? You know, you start out pretty simple. Who are you supporting in the Senate primary? And she tells me, oh, Blystone. Now Blystone is a man named Joe Blystone who is famous for this uh, this cowboy hat that he wears out there and he's kind of like an uber trump uh, candidate and he's running for governor and you know you can't it's hard to fault voters for you know not knowing the difference between a gubernatorial primary senate primary house primary and all that other stuff that's pretty typical in the midterms especially and you know i said all right well you know we so he's actually running for governor how about this uh, the other one though you know jd vance and josh mandel where you know where do you feel about that and and she said she's like look I'm so confused. J.D. Vance used to be a never Trumper. And then Trump says he likes him. And now Ted Cruz is a Josh Mandel guy. I don't know what's going on. And I heard a lot of that out there. So this was uh, on Saturday at the uh, the Delaware County Fairgrounds and kind of like an exurb of uh, Columbus, Ohio. And, you know, sometimes people were kind of dialed in on J.D. Vance. I didn't hear a lot of excitement for him. You know, kind of the uh, the decibel test out there was when you know when Vance came up on stage the first time, he goes up there and uh, you know he more or less apologizes or explains away his never Trump past, and um, you know kind of light applause for that. Trump gets up there about an hour and a half later, and Trump starts talking about talking him up a little bit, and um, not a ton of applause. Until Trump brings back J.D. Vance to the stage, and then people seem to start engaging. And to me, the way that seems, just as you know, political guy, a political reporter for years, is that these things are not hard baked, you know. And it's, you know, another voter I spoke with at a Josh Mandel event made a very astute observation. She said, you know, look, if Trump had come out here months ago and talked with everybody individually and then made a decision a long time ago, maybe this would have set in. But with two weeks left until the primary, and the primary is May 3rd, it doesn't seem to be doing anything. So, so handicap yeah. the race for us at this point. I mean, you have you know, Josh Mandel, who's run before and has been pretty hardcore MAGA and Trump guy until now. You have this woman, uh, Jane Timken, who is the, uh, I guess, the chair of the Ohio Republican Party, who's running another guy named- Former party chair. She left to run for the U.S. Senate. Yeah. Yeah. And Gibbons, who's also in the mix, who got into that sort of near fight with Mandel (laughs) during a rally. I mean, who's up at this point? How How do you see this race shaking out? You know, this is the question I had for all the political hacks before I came out there, right? You know, I was like, okay, guys, where, do you, where is everything? And you know what they kept on telling me? In the different campaigns, and there are a lot of Senate campaigns, jump ball, chaos. You know, Timken, we were at this uh, door knock rally on Saturday morning, and uh, she had like about 20 people who were going to go out and door knock around this really nice area of Columbus, uh, Miller Park. And yeah, I asked her that question, the exact same question. It's like, okay, where are things? You know, you're still running. You know, this hasn't stopped the race. You know, you haven't dropped out like Bernie Marino and you haven't dropped out and endorsed anybody. So obviously you still see some feasibility in this. And she said, it's chaos. 
it's a jump ball race. It's, you know, everything is up in the air. And, you know, look, if you look back at the polling that's gone on throughout this race, you would often find, you know, folks like Vance and Gibbons and Mandel and Jane Timken, kind of the big names in this race, with somewhere around like 10, 11, 12, 13, 14% support. I don't know that we've seen good polling since then. We've seen what I, you know, I would generally consider to be bad polling, which is internal campaign super PAC polls, you know, which you can usually consider to be a push poll from each each respective campaign, showing, you know, Mandel's walking away with this thing and you know, JD Vance is walking away with this thing. But when I was talking with folks out there, I it just seems like it did not set the race immediately. Maybe it has, and there's a lag time in us finding that out. But I think Timken really grabbed it. She said it's chaos right now. And, you know, again, back to our central question here, right? That's this is the test of Trump, right? You know, if you want to be a kingmaker, did this clear the field? And the answer is no. Do you have a sense of how Trump is making these endorsement decisions? Mm-hmm. I mean, to the, the the voter who you referred to before, the woman who said had he come out earlier and talked to us, it, it might have set in. And I, I just wonder, is he making, I mean, you know, clearly one of the standards for him is did they back my election lies, my mm-hmm. election, you know, fraud lies. In this particular race in Ohio, I mean, they're all backing him uh, in terms of the 2020 election. So what criteria is he using to make these decisions, as far as you can tell? <laughs> I'm laughing because this is like a, you know, uh, it's what we all talk about for the last six years, you know, of Trump, right? Which is, what's the criteria here? You know, on just about everything, you know, tax reform, you know, your judge selection. Well, the judge selection was Federalist Society list. So that was pretty easy, actually. But yeah, I mean, I, I had the same question. The folks I've talked to have the same question. There's a lot of confusion around it. You know, if you look at some of the earlier endorsements that Trump did, and uh, I, I think that these were pretty pretty easy calls for him. You know, look, the other guy who was on st- there uh, with him was a guy named Max Miller, who used to do White House work, and Max is uh, running against, and eventually, I guess they succeeded in forcing out one of the House candidates who had who had voted against Trump during the impeachment. One of the ten Republicans uh, uh, is Anthony Gonzalez from Northeast Ohio, just outside of Cleveland. That, that's that district up there. And, you know, Max Miller was on stage and, you know, that was an easy endorsement for Trump. There was the Trump endorsement of Kelly Chewbacca against Lisa Murkowski in Alaska. So those are the kind of the easy ones. But then once you kind of get past that, it gets a little weird, right? Like, okay, they had trouble clear trying to clear the field in Wyoming against Liz Cheney. They seemed, they seemed to settle on um, Hageman, who's running against Cheney. Did that come soon enough to actually successfully clear the field? We're going to find out, you know, to consolidate behind one opposing candidate to the incumbent. But the rest of it, you know, look at the uh, the Oz endorsement in Pennsylvania. I mean, right? it's not it's not clear that Trump is necessarily going to win any or, or most of these Senate races, uh, right? I mean, and you know, yes. because you've got he's he's most likely his candidate in Georgia, David Perdue is way behind. His Ohio right now seems like a toss-up. You just mentioned Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, I think McCormick might be a little bit up in that race. But McCormick, is that the name of the hedge fund guy? Yeah, David McCormick. Uh, you know, is uh, could easily win that uh, that primary. And, you know, you have to sort, sort of wonder, like, these are going to be, if, if he does lose a couple of these, these are going to be real self-inflicted wounds because... 
he didn't have to endorse at all. Yes. I mean, this is a point yes. that our colleague John Ward made in a, in a recent piece, which is, you know, he could have just sat it all out. All of these candidates are embracing the Trump worldview, the Trump policies, except mm-hmm. for the election. And obviously, mm-hmm. that's a big exception. So Brian Kemp uh, did not say, has not said the election was stolen and did not do his bidding um, after the election in, in, in 2020. But in every other sense, they have embraced yeah. uh, Trump's positions and policies. Now, he's in the position of potentially weakening his strength within the party and tarnishing his brand. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Well, you know, I mean, to that point, right? I was talking with before I went out to Ohio last week. I was I was talking with a veteran pollster about this and trying to gauge this stuff, and I was actually specifically interested in why Mike Pence keeps polling so well in these uh, these twenty four uh, polls that they that they put out. And his answer was fascinating. He said, "Look, you know, and and Trump had a very high favorability rating in, in his polls as well." And I asked about that, and he said, "Well, look, if you know, if former politicians tend to do very well." And if I put Barack Obama into this poll, uh, Obama would get 56% favorability of sitting politicians that do very poorly. And you would kind of get on to, okay, what do you do with formers? And he said, this is why people like Reagan and Clinton wouldn't go out after they left office and, and exercise their power after leaving office. Because the dirty secret of that is that you don't have as much power as you used to. And to, I mean, to the point, what you just said, you know, Brian Kemp is like the arch nemesis of Donald Trump, right down to him making that famous phone call right before January 6th, saying, if you could just find me 11,780 votes, you know, hey, just get me 11,780 votes, not to put too fine a number on it, okay? (laughs) And Kemp seems to be doing fine, you know, Purdue, the one with the Trump endorsement, the one Trump picked is not as you know, sucking wind down there, or at least based on the polling. And again, the same thing. You know, actually, on this uh, on this point yeah. of the embrace of Trumpism, we do have a clip of Vance speaking about the Trump policies and the attacks on Trump that he grotesquely misrepresents. But let's just listen and take apart some of what Vance is 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 saying here. Mark, you want to play that clip? Who would have believed that the Federal Bureau of Investigation, our FBI, would have got an illegal wiretap on a U.S. president? Who would have believed? Who would have believed that the January 6th protesters, many of whom are not even accused of a violent crime, would still be rotting in prison without an ounce of due process, which is required under our Constitution? And ladies and gentlemen, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of not living in a country that makes its own stuff that relies on the communist Chinese to make the things that we need. I'm sick of knowing that our own FBI is more concerned about arresting American citizens than it is about stopping the drug and sex trafficking across our southern border. Let's dissect this a little bit <laughs> just go through you know one by one his first example the fbi got a wiretap on a sitting u.s president um actually there's no evidence that ever happened january 6th defendants rotting in jail without an ounce of due process 
they've all been charged in court proceedings with full due process rights. And that last bit about drug and sex trafficking, uh, that seemed to be the standard, what is becoming the increasingly standard QAnon dog whistle out there, sex trafficking, right? Let me jump in here and and add one thing not mentioned in any part of that speech is the word or name Trump, which kind of raises, which goes to the point that there's now kind of Trumpism without Trump. Um, And so I'm, I'm kind of curious if Trump isn't the thing that's moving the needle in these races, what is? Okay. Well, two thoughts on that. And actually, you guys talked about there. So number one is, I'm with you. I keep on seeing these indications that we are already in a post-Trump universe. I think there's some kind of lag time in kind of determining this. But one of those is when I was out with Josh Mandel and and trailing Josh Mandel and Michael Flynn on their sweep across uh, from Cincinnati up to Cleveland. What was fascinating about that was I kept on hearing them talk about the stolen election and they repeated a lot of the election lie that Trump has put out there. And they would whip the crowd into, a, you know, into, well, not a frenzy like a Trump rally, but, you know, a frenzy for a, you know, an average size campaign talking about it, but never actually mentioning Trump. And I heard a lot of the voters at those stops telling me that, too, that, you know, stolen election, election lie, but not supporting Trump because he's supporting Vance. And the ability for them to dissociate from the name bearer, right, that Trump himself and stick with the Trumpism. So the second part of that is that clip that, so the, Mike, the clip that you played of Vance that going through the TikTok of January 6th, you know, rot, allegedly rotting in jails, uh, you know, et cetera. It sounded like Tucker Carlson. It sounded more like Tucker Carlson than it did Trump. And for that group, and again, I don't know that this represents a majority or even a sizable plurality of the Republicans right now, but for that group of kind of like your hardcore Trumper, loyalist, MAGA, and even smaller subset of QAnon types, that sounded like Tucker Carlson. And my guys have been telling me for more than a year now that Tucker really has the zeitgeist better than Trump. It's a fascinating point because, you know, Tucker Carlson has a much bigger megaphone right now, right, on, on Fox. Yes. And Trump yes. is off of Twitter. He puts out yes. these, these you know, statements, but they don't get the traction that his, you yep. know, kind of daily, uh, you know, tweets did. And so it's sort of the, you know, the second part of, of what you referred to before as the post-Trump era. Is it, are we now beginning to see the Tucker Carlson era beginning? <laughs> it feels that way. And, you know, look, at the beginning of last year, right after January 6th, you know, obviously all Trump's people, all they could cared about with January 6th was, oh, Trump was deplatformed. He's canceled, cancel culture, big tech. That was their take on it. And they kept on saying, I, you know, talk with these guys and they would tell me all the time. They're like, you know, Trump has to get the megaphone back. He has to build his own social media company. Well, OK, he's got the social media company. Right. Trump truth. Right. And he's not using it. And he advertised it at the rally on Saturday, but he's himself is not using it. He's using these workarounds. Same thing with uh, Trump Jr. Don Jr. gets the most traction on Twitter. Not Gitter, not Parler, not CloudHub, you know, not the other ones, not even truth. The thing he ostensibly is working on. 
Well, by the time we'll get we, we're done, Elon Musk maybe will be control maybe controlling who gets on Twitter and who does not. But Tom, before we go, one last question I want to ask you. You, of course, were uh, a biographer of Mike Pence and has been you've been closely tracking his post vice presidential activities. Uh, he clearly wants to run for president in 2024. How much of that critique that, if any, of that critique that Vance was offering, would Mike Pence embrace at this point? Oh, I, I doubt any of it. I mean, it was his yeah. life in danger and his wife's and one of his daughters. And you know, his people told me, you know, right after it happened, that yeah, he was very incredibly angry. You know, attack him, that's fine. You know, you guys know this. We all have family. Attack him, it's fine, but go after my family, put my family in jeopardy. And I, I think that's right, you know. And he's kind of what you see with Pence right now. You know, look, uh, and we rewrote about it a couple weeks ago. He he was he gave a speech down Charlottesville, the University of Virginia. Didn't really talk about January sixth. And I think what you see with Pence. And like the McConnell wing of the party. And I saw this at the Jane Timken spot, uh, a stop too, to a degree, is kind of trying to walk past Trump, kind of like, you know, can you walk past him onto the next stage of whatever the Republican Party is? But I mean, you're never going to have this, uh, you know, JD Vance about face from Mike Pence. I mean, there is still a core to that guy. And I think, you know, being having people out there chanting, hang him and, you know, hang Mike Pence doesn't really, <laughs> and what actually does is a little too much for, for the, for him at least. <laughs> All right, Tom, thanks again uh, for joining us. And um, Thank you guys. You know, as you go to more of these rallies, we will be checking back uh, to take, to take the temperature. Thanks a lot. Okay, we now have with us Kyle Kondik, the managing editor of the Crystal Ball, a nonpartisan newsletter that tracks U.S. elections. Kyle, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. So we want to talk about the coming month of primaries, particularly Republican primaries, because it strikes me that this is after sort of a, nearly a year and a half after Trump has left office, the first real test of just how much of a sway he still holds on the Republican base. You know, if you watch pundits, they'll tell you he controls the Republican Party. If you listen to some others, they'll say he's fading. But now we're this is crunch time and we're getting to it in some very key primaries in Ohio, where he's endorsed J.D. Vance for the Senate race, in Georgia, where he's endorsed David Perdue over the incumbent Republican Governor Brian Kemp, in Pennsylvania, where he's endorsed Dr. Oz in a very highly contested Pennsylvania primary. As you sit here today, how does it look for the Trump picks right now? And how do you see the fallout from those elections influencing the future in Republican Party politics? Well, you know, the, the, the former president has been endorsing people at, at kind of a, an extreme rate. I mean, he, he sends out emails basically every week endorsing lots of members of Congress, for instance, and even down ballot, even, even pe people further down the ballot than that. And so I don't think we should judge his sort of overall record because he's going to notch a lot of wins because he's endorsing a lot of people who really don't face any sort of actual challenge. 
but I think we should judge him on the ones where he's sort of sticking his neck out a little bit. And those are some of the ones you've mentioned, endorsing a former Senator Purdue in Georgia against sitting governor, Brian Kemp, and then endorsing in these two open seat uh, Republican Senate primaries in Ohio and Pennsylvania, where he decided to back candidates who I don't think were not clearly leading. And in fact, I think in the case of J.D. Vance, probably clearly behind, you could make the case that Mehmet Oz in, in um, Pennsylvania may have been leading, although a lot of the numbers suggested that David McCormick, the other major candidate uh, business guy, was actually leading that race. And so it'll be interesting to see if he can actually take a couple candidates in those races and, you know, catapult them to the, the, the front of the field when, you know, when the, when the voting actually happens. And, uh, you know, the, the, I'd say the returns for Except for Pennsylvania, Ohio, it's kind of too soon to tell because there aren't a lot of fresh numbers out there. There are some folks supporting J.D. Vance who put out some polling that suggests that they think that the endorsement has moved him into the lead. But I'd like to see other numbers that sort of uh, help help confirm that. David Perdue is not leading against Brian Kemp in Georgia and sort of time is running out in, in that race, um, which is coming up uh, in, in a little less than a month. And, uh, you know, the Pennsylvania race, kind of like Ohio, we, we haven't really necessarily seen where that race has gone since the Trump endorsement. So I think there's a, a lot of question as to whether Trump can get his favorite candidates over the finish line in these sort of high profile races, not the ones where he's just offering endorsements of people who are going to win anyway. But that strikes me as, you know, if he loses these big races, the three big ones in Ohio, Pennsylvania and Georgia, that strikes me as as a potential huge deal in terms of, you know, how Republican politics play out, you know, to the 2024 election. Because, I mean, if there's a really big chink on Trump's armor that does open the field, make it a lot more of a potentially robust contest in 2024. No. Yeah. I I think that, you know, the perception I think of Trump is still that he basically runs the party and that he's the overwhelming favorite to be the Republican nominee in 2024. And in some ways, this sort of, those sort of perceptions can kind of become a self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that if people feel that Trump is strong, then potentially strong candidates may decide they don't want to challenge him. And so you think about like, you know, Ron DeSantis or, name, you know, your other top Republican, like the former Vice President Mike Pence or other folks, you know, if they feel that Trump is strong, they may decide not to run, which in effect contributes to his strength because they don't have to deal with, he doesn't have to deal with running against stronger candidates in his own primary. And also you've got a lot of candidates who, it's, it's, it's the wildest thing. I mean, who would have, you know, who would have thought that you've got a losing president who still maintains such a dominance in his own party that people are bending over backwards to get his endorsement. I mean, I don't think you saw that in, you know, 1994 with George H.W. Bush or 1982 with Jimmy Carter or, you know, like, like, they were in, I mean, particularly Carter was a, somewhat of a pariah. And yet here you have another losing president who you here you have a former president who lost, but he's still this really dominant figure in his own party. But you know, I'd also I'd also caution, though, just just let's let's say hypothetically Trump comes out of May in some of these primaries and his candidates don't do very well. You know, maybe he doesn't lose everywhere he's endorsed in a competitive race. Maybe he loses, loses some of them. I feel like there might be this sort of overcorrection of saying like, oh, well, Trump actually doesn't matter anymore. Or he doesn't have any strength and juice in the party. And, you know, I, I don't think that would necessarily be the case. I think it would be more that, you know, he can't necessarily dictate who he wants the candidates to be in every sort of every race. But I think he's still a pretty powerful figure, again, particularly for a defeated former president. I was going to ask you a, a variation of that question, uh, Kyle, which is that, you know, there is this kind of 
I think, assumption by a lot of political types and prognosticators that if he loses these, uh, if his candidates lose these race races, that he is weakened, not just as the person who controls the Republican Party, but weakened personally as a candidate in 2024, should he choose to run. And I wonder, as you look at the numbers, because my experience interviewing Republicans, I was at a Trump rally a few weeks ago in Georgia, is there? it seems like cognitive dissonance, but you know they can support Brian Kemp, who they know well, and still be incredibly enthusiastic about Trump. So what do you think the impact of any at all this will have on his candidacy in 2024 if he runs? Uh, it's a great point. And, and also, I'm sure there are plenty of Republicans in Georgia who like Trump and they like Kemp and they're able to square that in their head because the 2022 Georgia gubernatorial primary is just a different different race than voting for president. We've seen in Ohio, too, that you know Trump endorsed J.D. Vance. And you know Vance is someone who I've sort of thought of as, as a, a national figure who happens to be from Ohio. And he wrote, you know, he wrote a book about a place, a place in Ohio, but he's not really an Ohio politician the way that like Mike DeWine or Josh Mandel or John Kasich are because they were actually, you know, elected to, you know, elected to office in Ohio and Vance hasn't done that in the past. So, you know, there are a lot of Republicans who feel like he has a, doesn't have much of a connection, like a real electoral political connection to the state. And they've questioned Trump endorsing him. But these are a lot of these people are folks who support Trump, supported Trump in 2020, supported him in 2016, and probably will do so again in 2024. But they feel like Trump basically made a mistake in this race. And you know, we'll see if that we'll see if that actually comes to pass if Vance ends up ends up not winning. But you know, I guess we're we're always just looking for some sort of sign that Trump might be sort of petering out. It kind of like it reminds me in some ways of remember when he lost the Iowa caucus back in 2016 and there was this line of argument that, oh, well, Trump, Trump always talks about himself as a winner and he just lost the first rate contest. So that's going to be this huge blow to him. And then he did like really well in New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada. And, you know, and, and he was well on his way to the nomination at this point. So even though, again, I do think he's sticking his neck out here a little bit, it maybe he does poorly and but it doesn't actually materially impact him in, 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 in sort of a long term way. I guess maybe it could change the behavior of actual Republican candidates who might feel like they could run races other than just basically genuflecting for, for Trump's endorsement. I want to step back from Trump and gubernatorial races real quickly and ask you about the House of Representatives. We are almost done with redistricting now. I think there are only a few states that are left to completely finalize their maps. A few months ago, a few weeks ago, a lot of people were saying Democrats had done better out of redistricting than they thought they were going to. That maybe he's changed. How is that impacting the prospect of uh, changing control of the House this year? Yeah, so we just saw in Florida that uh, Governor Ron DeSantis pushed for pretty aggressive gerrymander there, and he, he got it through the uh, the Florida House and Senate. We'll see if eventually the courts decide to unwind that map, although it'd be a little late in the game to do that here in, you know, for the 2022 election. We also have some legal questions about maps in states like Kansas, where there were just uh, there was just a um, negative or an adverse ruling against that Republican drawn map that's designed to weaken uh, Democratic member Sharice Davids in the Kansas City area. The New York democratic gerrymander may be unwound. And so I think that there's been some kind of like premature talk about, oh, what the, you know, who benefits from redistricting, what the overall maps look like. Like, I mean, it's mostly done, but um, there's still some twists and turns to go here. And so I've been a little hesitant to draw some, you know, to, to draw overall conclusions, because again, there's still things in flux. And frankly, 
we're going to see, you know, it basically happens every decade that, you know, the maps that had come into place in 2022 aren't necessarily going to be in place for 2024, et cetera. Like states like North Carolina and Ohio seem destined to have at least two or more house maps throughout the decade. I'd say generally speaking, it hasn't been as maybe as bad for Democrats as it could have been. Part of that is because you've seen some aggressive Republican gerrymandering that has been counteracted in some ways by aggressive Democratic gerrymandering. And so in some ways, those things even themselves out, although like if the New York maps get thrown out, then that's a, you know, the, the, then that hurts the, the Democrats overall tally. But, you know, the House map seems like it's still going to have like a little bit of a Republican bias, but maybe not as probably not as dramatic as one as it did a decade ago when the first maps came out for the for the for the 2010s. One of the reasons I ask it is because, you know, one of the things that seems to come out every every 10 years, the number of potentially competitive House seats seems to diminish as a result of the kind of the map drawing exercises, whether whether or not you call the, it a gerrymander or not. It does seem to have the effect of kind of steadily decreasing the number of competitive ma- uh, seats and locking in, you know, kind of the most extreme to the right or possibly to the left version of the Democrat or Republican who wins in every district. I'm curious whether or not as a result of this kind of latest round of redistricting, we can anticipate seeing more, you know, kind of let's call them right wing Republicans elected to House seats. Are we going to see kind of more people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosser, you know, Matt Gates coming out of these new districts? I'd imagine that we would. I, I don't necessarily have any names yet in, because in some ways, like, like I don't like Marjorie Taylor Greene was sort of someone known to House watchers just because she basically said and did such outrageous things. And, um, you know, Republicans are actually really worried about her. And, and again, I think that there probably will be. I mean, I'm expecting this to be a pretty good Republican year. And it may also be that you see some pretty hard right Republicans get elected from districts that are kind of leaning Democratic, but then some of those folks will probably end up losing in, in 2024. And, you know, you also have to look at the profile of some of the people who are, who are leaving. You know, you have seen a few of the uh, members who supported Trump's, Trump's impeachment, his second impeachment, uh, like Fred Upton in Michigan, decide to retire. You, you know, you may see some of these folks, you know, lose primaries. I mean, Liz Cheney is, is one out in, uh, out in Wyoming. And so the, the general trend has just been that, uh, you know, the two-party caucuses, I'd say particularly the Republican one, but you can make the argument for the Democrats too, the two-party caucuses are kind of getting further and further away from each other. You know, the other thing you know, that happens if, in fact, this is a wave year, and let's say that, you know, the Republicans win 20, 30 seats, something like that, you know, the seats that they flip are going to be ones that are, or many of them are going to be held by some of the more moderate or sort of less progressive Democrats. You think about like Abigail Spanberger in Virginia, Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan, you know, those are two kind of leaders of, of the kind of more closer to the center part of the Democratic Party. And if it is a big wave year, you know, candidates or members like that are going to be imperiled, I think. So, you know, the long term trend has been that the parties are becoming more ideologically cohesive and kind of moving further and further away from each other over time. And, you, you know, you very well could see that happen in, in, in the context of 2022. Well, just to buttonhole that point about the impact of gerrymandering and these trends that you referred to, yes, we're likely to get more extreme right-wing Republicans by Marjorie Taylor Greene. But as Axios reports this morning, we're also likely to get more strongly progressive squad-like members of the House on the Democratic side. In fact, 
just reading from Axios today, the squad is poised for big gains in November, despite the Democrats' likely loss of the House. They point to Greg Kassar in uh, Texas, a progressive running in a solid blue seat rooted in Austin and San Antonio. There's another progressive, Jessica Cisneros, running against Henry Cuellar. And down the list goes hardcore progressive Bernie supporters who are likely to caucus with the squad. And that's another sort of result of this extreme gerrymandering we're seeing, right? Well, I, w- I guess I would say that that you know, there, even if even if all the maps were drawn fairly across the country, and you had some sort of national solution to, you know, gerrymandering, um, you still have a whole lot of uncompetitive seats. You know, it's not you're, you're not going to be able to draw com- two party competitive districts in you know in much of like New York City or Los Angeles or in lots of rural places across the country, be it Western Nebraska or Western Kansas. You know, the, there are always going to be a lot of uncompetitive seats. However. One of the ways that, you know, gerrymandering kind of distort this a little bit is that there's this incentive for the party drawing the maps to draw a bunch of super safe districts for themselves and then to confine the minority party to a handful of safe seats for themselves. And so that does kind of reduce the level of competition or it can reduce the level of competition and um, provide some places for folks that are kind of ideologically extreme run. I guess I would just say that, that those folks might be running anyway, even in a world in which we would have completely fair, fair redistricting. Now, maybe it'd be a little, it'd be a little bit different um, because the maps would be fair and there'd be a little bit more competition. Kyle, uh, just back to the Senate races for a second, because what's been a little obscured uh, are the Democratic candidates uh, in these races when they get to the general election. And that's largely because of the Trump factor, because we're also fascinated with uh, Trump's um, endorsements in the in the primaries. But maybe uh, if you would assess the general election races in Ohio and Pennsylvania, because you've got Tim Ryan in Ohio, who's not a pushover. I mean, he's a pretty good candidate. And then in Pennsylvania, You've got uh, John Fetterman and Connor Lamb, who are in a tough race there, although I think Fetterman, last I saw, was considerably ahead. And both of those, uh, I think I'm right that both of those would be pickup states for Democrats, right? Yeah, both of those, both Ohio and Pennsylvania are currently Republican-held seats. You've got Rob Portman retiring in Ohio and Pat Toomey retiring in Pennsylvania. And that actually, as an aside, is just another way to look at kind of an ideological shift in that whoever replaces Rob Portman is probably going to be more conservative than he is. I mean, Portman's plenty conservative, so is Pat Toomey. Who sort of made his name in electoral politics by? But they're not MAGA conservative. That's right. That's right. They're con- they're conservative, but they're not. They're, they don't have the kind of Trumpy sort of tone, I guess, for lack of a way, what better way of putting it. And they're also people who are going to be more reliable for a future majority leader, Mitch McConnell, if he indeed gets the title back. And you know, someone like Roy Blunt in Missouri, for instance, who's also very close to leadership. You know, he's probably going to be replaced by someone who maybe isn't as close to, to leadership as, as Blunt was. Um, so there, there's that changing of the guard going on, too. But in terms of the general election, I think, you know, Tim Ryan, Democrats have wanted him to run statewide in Ohio for a decade and a half. He's finally done it, I think, in, in part because his, his district was going to go away. He represented this kind of a Democratic vote sink that was drawn by Republicans 10 years ago to basically to basically elect Tim Ryan and to elect like Republicans to the neighboring seats. But that district, like so many other kind of white working class places, trended heavily Republican over the course of the decade to the point where 
it was a district that, that really wasn't even that democratic anymore. And so Ryan is running statewide finally. And I think it is absolutely a credible general election candidate, but boy, in a midterm environment like 2022 could very well be. And, you know, with, with a Republican nominee who may not be perfect, but probably will be broadly acceptable. I think if Vance is the nominee, that's sort of how I would describe him. I just think it's really uphill for Ryan. You know, Pennsylvania is a more competitive state these days. And uh, I think, you know, again, I, I, I agree with you. I think it'd be a big surprise if Fetterman was not the Democratic nominee in Pennsylvania. You know, I think that there are a lot of Republicans who would prefer David McCormick as the nominee there. They might very well get Mehmet Oz as the, as the nominee. And, and that one, I, I think that one's a little bit hazier. But if you just sort of defer to the environment, as I often like to do in the, in the case of a, a midterm election like this, you'd probably think the Republican candidate has a better than 50-50 chance in that state as well. So you mentioned before uh, throughout the idea of Republicans would pick up 20 to 30 seats in the midterms, which would be more than enough to give them control of the House. That does seem to be the conventional wisdom these days. Well, I want to ask you, you know, how solid you think that conventional wisdom is at this point. And then taking it beyond that, if the Republicans do take control, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, took quite a black eye in recent days when he was proven to have falsely denied he said that he was going to suggest that Donald Trump resign and that he had it with the guy. Then, of course, uh, Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns of The New York Times produced the tape in which McCarthy said exactly what he was uh, accused of saying and had denied. Is Kevin McCarthy a sure thing to be the next Speaker of the House if the Republicans do, in fact, take control in November? Well, you know, one thing you got to remember is that, you know, Kevin McCarthy arguably could have, should have been Speaker Way back when Paul when when uh, Paul Ryan eventually got the job, when John Boehner announced he was resigning in late 2015, and so you know we do have an instance of McCarthy being the next in line as he is now. He is the leader of the Republican conference. Uh, um, you know things happened, and he didn't get he didn't get it, and so quite possibly could happen again. I will say that if in fact Republicans do sort of realize the conventional wisdom you and I are both talking about, and you know maybe they don't, maybe they do better than that, I, you know, maybe they do worse, you know, there's, there's still, I think, a, a fairly decent range of possibilities here. But if in fact Republicans do well, you know, McCarthy is going to be, I think he's going to get some credit for that, you know, as the, as the leader of the, of the Republicans in the House. And I think that will give him some shine to, to going into the speaker election that, you know, I think maybe helps paper over some of some of the problems that he's had. And, you know, the more members he elects, the more defections he can take, he can he can take in the speaker vote. So if there are some kind of conservative dead enders who vote against him the way that some of those kinds of folks voted against John Boehner and his speaker elections, um, he could survive that. But, you know, if it's if it's only and let's say the Republicans win 15 seats, which would be a two, you know, they'd have 228 seats in that instance. You know, then he can only afford like 10 defections. And then that's where you start to get the math, you know, the, the math starts to get difficult. So, I mean, obviously any party wants to have as many seats as possible, but for McCarthy, it's, you know, the more people who got elected, many of whom are going to feel indebted to him as sort of the, you know, the, the, essentially the leader of Republicans in the House and, and connected to all their campaign efforts, you know, those will be some folks who are probably pretty eager to vote for him for, for Speaker. So that, you know, I think the, the sort of math in the House makes a difference as to whether McCarthy would be Speaker. I, I guess the larger mega question here is, does it matter 
if you lie anymore in American politics. I mean, there McCarthy was proven to have falsely denied saying what he in fact said. And it used to be that was a, more than a huge embarrassment. You suffered a political cost for that. It's not clear McCarthy is. I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I think that there are there's a lot of things that have happened over the course of you know Trump being in office and Trump being a candidate that it's almost uh, you know you, again things that things that would have been um, forced someone to resign in the past maybe don't anymore. Like you know another good example, I guess, that totally different, but you know the travails of now former Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, you know back in early 2019, you know that yearbook picture emerged and you know maybe him maybe not in blackface and um, you know that's something that I think maybe 20 years ago would have caused him to resign but he um, and, and there was some talk about this at the time that like he, he and his advisors basically thought well you know it's easier to survive these things in the past let's just try to push through it and you know he was able to do that I and mean, I think he he was damaged by it but and again that's a different different kind of story than, than what we're talking about with McCarthy but I just think a lot of things are more survivable maybe than they, they used to be I want to ask you a question about the kind of electorate, you know, with a it being a redistricting year, the, you know, kind of the second year of a of a presidential term, you know, normally we expect to see kind of a, a turnover in the House or a pretty significant loss to the, the president's party. What I'm particularly curious about, though, is how volatile do you think the U.S. electorate, the American electorate is right now? Seems kind of, you know, just stepping back to see to be more kind of on edge than the American electorate has been in my lifetime, it feels like. What's your assessment of that? I'd say the electorate is volatile in the sense that, that particularly in a midterm, you just have a, it's a smaller universe of voters, even though I, I think turnout will probably be pretty high for the midterm, just like it was in 2018. It was like 50% of eligible voters voted in, in 2018. And uh, in the 2020 presidential, it was like two thirds exactly of eligible voters. You know, I don't know if it'll be quite 50%, but it might be, you know, 45 to 50, which would be high for a midterm. But, you know, I think the universe of people showing up probably will be a, kind of a Republican leaning group in that the people, you know, Republicans are generally like, to tell pollsters that they're excited about voting. You know, we saw, I think, you know, the, the political environment back in November when Virginia and New Jersey voted might be pretty similar to what we have in this November. And that was an election where I think Republicans definitely benefited from kind of a turnout differential in their favor. You know, there was there were just there was less of a drop off from the presidential on the Republican side as opposed to the Democratic side. There have been a number of uh, um, studies and analyses done of that of the Virginia election in, in the past few months. They, some of them kind of differ as to whether you know Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, won more because he flipped Biden voters, or whether he benefited from from differential turnout. My own read of it is that you know there was a combination of both, but that he really benefited from a pretty Republican. Republican-leaning electorate, and that could very well be what we end up seeing in November. And that's that really makes a huge difference, I'd say, particularly in the House, because so many of the Republican targets in the House are seats that Joe Biden won that Democrats hold. And so it's a question then as to how deeply Republicans can cut into those sort of sort of seats. And you know, with a dip, you know, with with an electorate that looks a lot different and might be a lot more Republican-leaning, might be able to cut pretty deeply in. I just want to follow up with one thing. You know, I was just recently looking at a poll and, and this really jumped out at me. It kind of shocked me, which was the when you poll people about whether or not we're, the country's headed in the right direction. 
the the poll I saw had Democrats at uh, 54.8% saying the country's headed in the right direction and Republicans 6.7%. And that spread strikes me as pretty shocking and wider than you might normally expect to see. I wonder if that if if my kind of gut reaction to it is right and whether or not again you think that that signals something different about the way this election is going to play out. I think it I think it's a sort of thing that you that you might expect to see in a midterm environment um, in that the the basically the side that's the side out of power is more angry at what's going on because their preferred policies are not getting advanced, you know, those sorts of things. They're mad about something, something going on with the administration. Um, the right the right track, wrong direction polling historically, it's almost always negative throughout American history. It sometimes will pop up, but like it's kind of like congressional approval, which often ends up being pretty low. But then it's a question of sort of how low it is. And to your point, it is very low right now. And, and I think the fact that there are so many Democrats even who feel like we're in the wrong track maybe speaks to, and, and, and that, that Biden's approval is a little bit weak even amongst Democrats. I think it speaks to that, that you can have this highly engaged Republican elected that really feels like things in the country are bad. And maybe you could have a slightly less engaged Democratic electorate who, you know, if they come out, they're probably going to vote Democratic. But there's a question as to whether some of these lower turnout groups that are so important on the Democratic side, people of color, younger voters, et cetera, it's a question of that actually whether they actually show up. So there's a I think there's an intensity edge on the Republican side driven by them being upset about any number of things. And, you know, it also speaks to the possibility that all of the stuff that Trump is saying about the 2020 election and, and, you know, complaining about fraud and whatnot that he doesn't really have any evidence for, but that that might actually be motivating some people to be more angry about what's going on and to to vote to vote accordingly. Now, I think it's pretty clear that that some of the post-election complaining probably hurt the Republicans in Georgia when they did the Senate runoffs uh, uh, back on January 5th, 2021. But it seems like that has turned around a little bit. And that, you know, whatever lack of intensity Republicans had in that election, they've kind of made up for it um, since. I've got just kind of one last horse race question. You um, talked about what the kind of range could look like in terms of a, a Republican House victory, taking back the House, you know, maybe it's somewhere between 15 and 25 or 30 seats. But what about the Senate? That seems a little murkier. So what's your sense of, you know, what the odds are of the Republicans actually taking back the Senate or the Democrats, conversely, um, holding on to it? I think the Senate, as, as most people feel like, is, is, is kind of uh, more up in the air than the House is. But I, again, as a believer in kind of the environment, I just have to think that with a handful of targets in marginal states like Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, even New Hampshire, that at the end of the day, the Republicans are just going to be able to net one seat out of that somewhere. Now, I guess if the D- Democrats were to you know, flip Pennsylvania or Wisconsin, which Again, I, I don't think it's partic- is, is super likely, but, but uh, you know, we'll have to wait and see there. I just think that, that with, with the environment the way it is, the, the, the Republicans have enough targets to get the Senate. Now, I can't sit here and tell you that I think it's going to be, you know, Nevada and Arizona that flip or something like that. Now, I do, think, I do think Nevada might be the best Republican target, but you can make an argument for Arizona or Georgia in that regard. I will say also that, you know, the, the Republicans have kicked away some Senate races in the past as Mitch McConnell himself talked about um, very recently at an event he was at, uh, particularly in 2010 and 2012. Although um, you could also see Roy Moore in 2017 as another one of those kinds of uh, kinds of candidates. And so, you know, I guess I'd feel better about the Republican Senate chances if they had like 
the former governor of Nevada, Brian Sandoval, running as their candidate there, or Chris Sununu, the governor of New Hampshire, running there, or you know someone who was not a first-time political candidate in Georgia as opposed to Herschel Walker, who is kind of a yeah. I was going to say I, choice. I do think that Herschel. I do think that Herschel Walker is not going to win that race, um, but you never know. He's got he's a big hero down there. I mean, he's he's probably. If you believe the you know national numbers or whatever, he's probably leading, not by a lot. And he also hasn't taken the kind of incoming fire that he's going to take when and if he's the nominee. Right. He's, he's going to yeah, he's going to have to debate and he's going to have to give some interviews. And I think that's going to be right. rough based on what I've seen so far. Or but maybe we'll not. See. Maybe he won't debate and won't give interviews, and that might be his best shot to win. Actually, um, I think that they will have a, a sort of a bunker strategy there. And, uh, and again, the environment can over can overcome a lot. Although, and I think it's I think it's probably easier with House races than Senate races, just because Senate races just get more attention. But look, I mean, the, the Republicans are obviously worried about it because McConnell would be talking about it if he wasn't worried about it. Now, he's also probably just sort of being extra cautious in his public comments. But let's put it this way: if if Mitch McConnell had the singular power to draft and run the candidates that he wanted in every in every state, I don't think the roster of candidates would look like this. I think it'd be different, you know, and again, you have a Chris Nunu running or, you know, or, 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 or uh, they wanted Doug Ducey, the, the sitting governor of Arizona to run. He decided not to do it, you know. So, again, that the, all these states might elect Republicans in the Senate anyway, but um, it seems like a little bit there are more question marks about it than there otherwise might be. OK, to close this out, I'm going to ask you to go out on a limb. We've focused on three big primaries, Republican primaries coming up. Next month in May, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Georgia, who's going to win those three big races? It looks like Kemp is in pretty good shape in Georgia, so I'd pick him there. I feel a little bit more confident about Vance winning in Ohio than Oz winning in Pennsylvania, but I don't feel particularly uh, particularly strongly about that. So in, you know, maybe you don't expect uh, Trump to get his choice in all in all of these states. So again, I would take maybe take Vance's chances a, a little bit over over Oz's. Well, we will see. Or as the cliche goes, only time will tell. That's right. Um, all right. And if Trump wins two out of those three, he is going to be spiking yeah. the football, is my guess. Well, he'll probably be spiking the football, whatever the happens. Yeah, you know, yeah. 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 I, think that's, I think it's a fair bet. think he won <laughs> or that it was stolen, whatever. <laughs> uh, anyway, Kyle, thanks a lot for joining us. And um, we will definitely want to keep in touch. 